I, um, I don't have a handout yet. Um, I gave it to Brianna so she could make a copy of it because the copier in the office was not working. And so I asked her about it. She said she'd take care of it and bring it back in here, but I don't know if she's going to bring it in before class or after class. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but that also had all most of our notes. And let me see if I can remember a few things. First off, the end of the month, 31st of the month, January of July, is a is Lord's Supper, so it's a fifth Sunday. So we'll be having Lord's Supper. We will not have class in here that day. Uh, we, there'll be no ABFs at all, actually. So we're just meeting at 10:30. Um, actually, I think that's in the bulletin. Just as a reminder. Well, where's that? We can read that. That was said January or July 31st. There will be no 9 o'clock service. Just 10.30 for Lord's Supper. And uh, so that's that's uh, one of the things I want to make sure everybody knew about. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> well, I'm not just going to read what's in the bulletin for you. Uh, just you guys... Hopefully you got a bulletin or you'll get a bulletin. You can read that up, keep up with everything going on. Um, I did want to make sure to uh, pray for um, Betty's grandson, Daniel. Uh, he's sick and uh, he, he's visiting this week, right? Been here for a week, but he's been sick. So just pray for him that he gets uh, healed up and gets everything taken care of. And then also pray for Terry Wilson. Terry's going to have surgery August first but um, she so she needs prayer she's asked just to kind of just pray just pray that everything go well if you want to know more about the details about what's going on with Terry Wilson you can talk to her um, and um, so can I talk about all what you told me in the car today okay so she was at her mom's house so I don't know what day when she was trying to clean the carpet and she was using some sort of a machine ran over her toe and took her big toenail off. So that's got to get healed before surgery happens because, you know, it could get infected. So pray for her, pray for her toe, and then pray for the surgery that it all goes well. So, uh, so kind of keep that in mind. And um, pray for Bob. Bob's continuing to deal with his things going on. Of course, there's a lot of other people that we can be praying for, but those are the ones that were on that list. And then, um, uh, I don't know what else is on there. About the hand without my notes, I'm I'm useless. Yes. I have not heard about Kevin Thompson. What's going on with him? I didn't even know that. I haven't heard from anybody about that at all. Um, but I will see what they find out. And uh, anyway, um, there's some other stuff. Brian was just encouraging people. To, you know, we've had a lot of people get saved uh, recently, and uh, so Brian's encouraging people to disciple. So just pray for that. If you're discipling, just continue on. Uh, if your disciple is approaching uh, the end of the discipleship one lessons, encourage them to sign up for discipleship two. I don't know if the dates are in the bulletin uh, when that class starts for discipleship two. And then if you finish discipleship two, HPI registration is open for HPI. Um, details on the website if you're interested in uh, in that and uh, and so uh, there's a lot of things to sign up for a lot of things going on but I can't remember them all so it is good for us to be back you know we were on vacation for several weeks we missed several Sundays in a row uh, but uh, it's good to be back now so I'm thankful for that uh, if you've got your Bible turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 we're going to read verses 1 to 7 that's not where we're studying today but as you recall uh, we have a prayer, a, a passage that we always go to to read, and then we, uh, we pray that those verses, those are our prayer points for today. And we take turns praying, uh, and if everybody's done praying, then I'll close it out, and we'll get into the lesson. But let's see, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Solomon writes this in verse 1. For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all of this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. 
all things, all things come alike to all. There is one event to righteousness and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrifices and to him that sacrifices not. As is the good, so is the sinner, and as he is, and he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that have been done under the sun, and there is one event unto all. Yea, all, all, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart, while they live, and after that they go to the dead. For to him that is joined to all, the living, there is hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything, neither have they any more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. And also also their love and their hatred and their enemies now perish. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is under the sun, that is done under the sun. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this passage of scripture, Lord, which parallels really a lot of things that we've been talking about in in our study on the book of Colossians. Father, we ask that you would help us to consider things in our heart and that we would declare righteousness and we would declare wisdom and we would declare the right works of the hand of God and we would do things according to your will. We ask, Father, for your help in that. We do pray for people. Uh, Lord, we pray for, for Bob Klein. We pray for Terry Wilson. We pray for uh, Daniel and so many others, Lord, that we don't have our name have names listed. But, Lord, there are many people that need prayer. We pray for Kevin Thompson. It was mentioned that he had surgery. Lord, we don't know the status of his surgery. We pray that it went well. Uh, Lord, we ask for his healing. Uh, that it would go uh, completely uh, healed up as soon as possible. He can get back into uh, living and, and, and doing things that you have him doing already. Uh, we just pray, Father, for all of these things. ask you to, uh, to just bless today. Speak to us in your word. In Jesus' name. Okay, well, again, I apologize. We don't have a handout uh, so you can kind of follow where I'm at. But uh, um, anyway, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're at, uh, passage-wise. And so we're back in our study here in Colossians. It's been four or five weeks. I'm not even sure how many weeks it's been. It's been so many weeks. Uh, we've had, you know, one... Oh, by the way, uh, is that thing up there turned on to fan only? Okay, thank you. 
So we're going to try to circulate the air with the big with the, with the central unit. We won't have the we won't have the air conditioner turned on, but we'll have the fan blowing. So that thing will hopefully cycle. It'll it'll circulate the air. I guess that's blowing cold air, but it's it's, it's making the tree cold. Well, anyway. All right, yeah, it's on. Okay, thank you. Well, hopefully that'll work. Um, I don't know what that's setting at, but hopefully it's, it's good. Anyway, so it's been four or five weeks. We were on vacation and missed three weeks for sure. We were temporarily, we closed down the class at least one Sunday because it was so hot in here. Um, we, we really need to crank that up, get it as ice cold in here as possible because this coming week is going to be a bad week for temperatures. But anyway, um, we shut down the class. Uh, we was on vacation, so we had, uh, I think Lance spoke and Ray Blowers and uh, Jeremy spoke. Um, and so it was good to have those guys step in for me while we were on vacation. But we are glad to be back now. It's, uh, it's good to be here. It's good to see everybody again. And, uh, oh, Brianna is here, so she's passed them all out. Okay. So just as a reminder, the title of our study. I think I got everything there. That's good. Okay. So anyway, the title of our study has always been, and start from the beginning of this lesson. Uh, is the knowledge of Christ, but the, the, the book, my, in my view, this is where Paul is at. He's talking about the knowledge of Christ. And we looked at uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, just as, just as a reminder where we've been, because it's been so long since we've been in this book. But in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So that's our key verse for this study. We're really, we're looking at Christ. We're we're connecting with him. This is a very doctrinal letter uh, that Paul wrote, but it's a, and it's a good letter. It divides up into two parts. Chapters 1 and 2 focus primarily on doctrine and uh, being filled with Christ, being in Christ, being Christ being in you. And and then uh, the theme verse for the first half of it was chapter 1, verse 10. It says that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So there, the knowledge of God. We're trying to increase in the knowledge of God. Why do we need to increase in the knowledge of God? Because it makes us a better Christian. There is no other way that you can you can def define that. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that concept here, you know, in this lesson. But uh, the knowledge of God is important. So uh, that's that's why we're having this study. So the the second part of the lesson, chapter three and, and chapter four, when we get to it focuses on practical application of those doctrines in your life. And the theme verse of the second part of Colossians is chapter 3, verse 10, which is where we're at today. Uh, we'll get to that later. But it says, Put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge of after the, after the image of him that created him. And so, so we're supposed to do something important as a Christian. We're supposed to put on the new man. We'll talk about That's why I titled this, uh, What Will You Wear? As a Christian, what are you going to wear? Not what do you wear to church? We're not talking about you know what, is it okay to wear shorts or you know tank tops or whatever. Not, it's not that kind of a question. It's what are you going to put on spiritually speaking? And so the word "no" in this in this lesson in this this entire letter is there's eleven verses that use some sort of knowing. Talk about knowing in some way, and it's the intent of the letter for you to know so that you can apply. And it's a small letter. Written to church to a church that Paul Paul neither started this church nor did he ever visit this church. It's an interesting uh, thing about th about this church in Corinth or in Colossia. This church got started, uh, and we talked about that already a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago now by now. But we uh, some probably somebody was at Jerusalem at the time of the Pentecost after the, after the resurrection of Christ and the ascent of Christ. And they probably heard Peter speaking. They went back to Colossia, told all their family and friends, and a church got started. And so Paul's writing this letter uh, because he became aware of this 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 church. 
by the person that we believe is their pastor, which is uh, Epaphras. Uh, we believe he visited Paul while Paul was a prisoner in Rome. He came and he said, hey, this is what's going on in my church. What do you think I should do, Paul? I've heard you're, you're an orator of, uh, and, a, and a teacher and a leader of, of churches. You start them, you get them going, you get them founded. What can I do? And so Paul says, well, tell me about your church. So he did. And he said, okay, let me write your church a letter. And that's where the letter came from. So he wrote to the believers to give them a word of encouragement to stay strong in the faith and to avoid false doctrine that may creep in. So we have two things as a Christian that we need to always be aware of. We're supposed to um, uh, be to be strong in the faith that we have. Sometimes people get weak. They get they get they get tired of 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 all of the Christianese that, that envelops their life, and they get tired of it. And they, a lot of people pull away. They back away from from being Christian or being identified as a Christian. They don't want to do that. But you need to be strong in your faith. And not only that, but you also need to avoid false doctrine that creeps in into your life and into your church. That's what was happening in this church. This letter is a strong letter, even though it's only four chapters. It's very short. It's a strong letter for every believer, but especially for new believers. It's a really good book for, for new believers to start in. So much for I would recommend it be on your recommended list. of where to, Somebody says, where should I start reading the Bible? This ought to be on your list. Do you guys have a list? Where, where would you send somebody if they said, I want to read the Bible, where should I start? Oh, start in Genesis. Or start in Isaiah. No, we wouldn't do that. But we would tell them where we start. So I think in your handout there, I've given you a list of where I would recommend people go to read and why. Okay, obviously the Gospel of John is a great book to, for people to read. It's easy to read, actually. It's not a difficult uh, Gospel, but... It introduces new readers to the truth that Christ is God. That's what the Gospel does. Gospel of John does. But, you know, I also say, okay, after you finish reading the Gospel of John, go back and read 1 John. Because it learns how to walk with, you. in that book, you learn how to walk with Christ in 1 John. You know what, in 1 Thessalonians is another book to people, for people to read right off the bat. Because there you learn what awaits the believer. What's coming in your future. A lot of, in fact, one of the, this was one of the first letters that, that Paul wrote was to the church at Thessalonica to address what is happening to those who are dead. Will they go? Will they be Will they be resurrected? Will they go to heaven? Or are they dead? Or are they just done? They just they're done. No, Paul wrote this letter so everybody knows where the Christians are. And then I would recommend reading Colossians because it's a short, brief letter of the major doctrines of Christianity. It's really a short, brief letter that kind of hits on so many doctrines so quickly, so fast, that you almost overlook what Paul is saying. And then the last one in my recommendation list would be the book of Romans, because it details being a Christian. It gives the details of being a Christian. So think about that, and you, you can take this and use it if you want. You can, you can just process it in your own mind. Well, I, I probably wouldn't go to 1 John. Maybe I would go to 3 John or whatever. I don't know. But... We all should have a recommended list of where we should go. If somebody says, where should I read the Bible? Well, pick one of these. You don't have to start in, gospel, in the Gospel of John. Uh, maybe because of the conversation you're having with that person, maybe you do want to start in the Book of Romans. Maybe you do want to go back to Thessalon- First Thessalonians because you've been talking about the rapture with somebody. It's like, you know, everybody's going to get raptured, either raptured uh, uh, to heaven or raptured to hell, one of the two. So we're talking about that. So let me, let me let me go back and read First Thessalonians. Paul lays it all out very clearly there. So, but you should have a recommendation, a recommended list of where you would read, where you would send somebody to read the Bible. And here's the thing: maybe you're gonna take this. What is there? Five. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, five books. Just maybe in your reading, go back and read John, then read First John, then read First Thessalonians, then read Colossians, then read Romans, and see what that what that does for you, how it all lays out, and everything is built on everything else. Okay, so what's going on in Colossae that we had to have this letter to begin with? Epaphroditus, or Epaphras went there because he had a concern for his church. He didn't know what to do. He's a young guy, never been a pastor before, not sure what to do, hadn't heard from Paul, but he knew of Paul. And so there were false teachers that were praying on the church, not praying with the church, but praying on as in desiring to destroy. They're, they're like animals to destroy, praying on the church. 
and they still do even today. There are people that are false teachers that still come into the church. They either come into your life or they come into your church and they try to destroy the, the, the things that are going on there. In fact, what they're actually trying to do is a church that's experiencing or a believer that's experiencing a rich and powerful relationship with God, they're trying to destroy that. They're trying to destroy your walk with, with God through Christ. That's what a false teacher is actually trying to get accomplished. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything for the world. Wouldn't you agree with that? The resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything for everybody in the world. Because now it's identified. Some people are lost, some people are not. So that's for every person in the world. Either you're saved or you're lost. You can't be in the middle anymore. You can't be, I don't believe in Christ. So, Well, if you don't believe in Christ, then you're lost. I mean, you you picked your... your, uh, your character. And so this chapter um, and the next, chapter 4, spell out for us what Christianity is all. Have you ever, how would you define Christianity? I didn't put this in your note, I don't think, but let me just say it this way. Christianity is this, a shared life with the risen and ascended Christ. That's what Christianity is all about. That To be a Christian doesn't mean that you're a nice person and you go to church on Sundays and you sing hymns and you and you give tithes. I mean, that you do all those kind of things because that's part of being. That's how you exhibit, how you express your your your, Christ, your Christianity. But to be a Christian, it's a shared life with the risen and ascended Christ. You have a shared life with Christ, and call yourself a Christian. You you are establishing that you have a walk with Christ. So the statements in this chapter, chapter chapter three, are written specifically. To steer you away from attempts by these false teachers, and to discon- who want to disconnect us from attempting um, to uh, to be where God wants us to be. And what they want to do is is they want to give you a worldly solution. Isn't that amazing how the world wants to give you a worldly solution for the world's problem? Just now. I think. Unfortunately. Both, unfortunately, both. Some people know they're teaching lies, but they teach them because they want to deceive, because they're they're actually trying to seek something for themselves. Sometimes they don't know that they're giving false information because they have not invested in the Bible to study the truth. And there's a lot of people out there today walking around, not just in HBF. I'm not talking about HBF. I'm not just in the Christian world. There's a lot of people walking around who share what they believe about the Bible, and it sounds so. Um, sincere but that's where you and I are, re- are required and we've already seen this the idea that we're required to test the speaker to test the speaker even myself you, you know, verify that what I'm telling you is good doctrine and if it's not challenge me on it I mean I hope I'm not teaching false doctrine I try not to teach false doctrine but at the same time I'm teaching what I believe so, but most people who are false teachers, I don't think that they, majority of them probably don't know they're a false teacher. They just got taught something that was wrong. Like, baptism is for salvation. Well, you've got to get baptized. I mean, the Bible says, be baptized and repent of your sins. So you've got to get baptized. No. Why? Well, because we know what the truth is in the Bible because we've studied it out. So that's how it kind of works. I hope that helps. It doesn't really help because we can't, we can't like hear it. Oh, so if somebody walks up to you and say, hey, I'm, I'm a false teacher. Let me tell you something. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think you would like, no, you walk away from it. Okay, so anyway, so the statements in this chapter are written specifically to steer us away from the attempts of the false teacher. Paul, so basically, let me just finish the, your, your, the answer to your question. Paul's writing this letter to give you the tools that you need to identify when a false teacher is coming in. Because he's, he's laying out the truth. And um, and so we got to be, we got to watch that kind of stuff. So, you know, Paul says that we're in the world, um, and so he writes his guide to us that we're in the world, but he doesn't want us to be in, to live. We're in the world, but we're not of this world. And so, so these verses... Are not, are, they're not just words uh, that he's written. They are fundamental facts of Christianity. 
they're concrete enough for us to count on when facing any circumstances in our life. So that's kind of a, just a reminder. Everything we've covered in the first two chapters and the first part of chapter chapter three a couple weeks ago. So chapter two ended with a strong doctrinal lesson. Chapter three started with some strong and practical implications of those lessons. And one of the easily recognized tendencies of Paul in his writing is to use, I mean, we talked about this if-then statement last week, or a couple weeks ago now in chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, if then ye be risen. That's an if-then logical statement. And Paul likes to use those kind of statements to teach truth. And so Jesus also liked to teach with parables. You know, So you could say an if-then statement is kind of like a parable. Jesus taught a lot of parables. I think, I think we went through that a few years ago. And uh, we covered, I think, there's 25 or 27 parables that's in the, in the, in the Gospels. He taught with parables, uh, not to confuse, but to give it a practical illustration of life. Because a parable is not just a story. It's not a fable. It's actually something that does occur. And he's saying, you know what happens over here? Well, let me give you the spiritual truth behind that. And that's what a parable was all about. Okay, so Paul begins chapter 3 with a logical condition. Uh, and then we talked about that. Just real quick, review verse 1. If then if you've been risen, then you will see. That's what verse 1 says. Um, uh, if, if, you've been, if, you, if you've risen with Christ, verse 2 says that you will direct your affections to things above. And verse 3 says if you've been risen with Christ, then you will appear with Him in glory. So those things are practical very practical truths. Now, starting in verse 5, this is really where we need to be. So there's a lot of introduction just to get, get us back on a, on solid ground. Starting in verse 5 down through verse 15, 16 in that area, Paul gives us very practical advice for the believer to do two things. To put off, he says that twice, to put off, or to put, and to put on, he said put on three times in these passages here. So essentially, Paul is guiding the church and every believer that if you are risen with Christ, then there are behaviors that define your belief to the world. There are behaviors that you need to put on so that when somebody sees you, they don't just see, oh, well, that's how Christians do things. No, what they see is Christ. That's what we want people to see. So, like I said, I've entitled this portion of the scripture, What Will You Wear? Because, you know, we can wear the world's solutions. We can wear, we can put on the world's solutions to our, our problems. Or we can put on the scripture solutions. What, what do you want to put on? What do you want to wear? Paul wrote it to the Thessalonians. He said in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us now how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. How should you walk? So he's telling the church of Thessalonica basically what he's telling the church of Colossia, how you should walk, how you should behave. Verse 1 to 4, like I said, is that if-then statement of you being risen in Christ. But the context of this logic flows all the way down through chapter chapter 3. And just as a reminder of what we're really going after, Paul says to the the Thessalonian church in chapter 4, verse 4, 1 Thessalonians, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification. So really what we're talking about is how do you be sanctified? How do you be sanctified? What does that look like in a Christian? So verses 5 to 8, so let's just read Colossians verses 5 to 8, and we'll get started. Paul says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in whom you also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now you are put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Verse 9, go ahead down to verse 10. Lie, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man and his with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So you see, put off, put on. What are you going to put off? What are you going to take off? What are you going to put on? That's where Paul's going with this. So, to that end, Paul tell, gives the, the Colossians some specific ways to walk in this newness of life. First, verse one, he says you need to mortify the flesh. Okay, so what does that mean? How do you how do you actually mortify the flesh? To mortify is to put to death. All right, that's what it means to put to death, to die, to deaden, to deprive. Um, 
Now, this is not a valid reason. Let me just say it this way. This is not a valid reason to commit suicide because the world's going, you know, sideways. It's not a reason. That this this doesn't justify salvation or suicide. But there are many practical things that do need to be killed. We who are risen with Christ should subdue every carnal and evil thought. We should subdue it. We should put it away, put it aside. We are to subdue and give no quarter to our fleshly desires. You know what I mean by no quarter? I mean, don't allow them any wiggle room in your life. Don't allow that 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 fleshly desire. You know, the, the flesh is what commits the sins, right? And so this is the same directive that Paul gave the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. He says, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So mortifying our members. Let's talk about that for just a minute. Our members, mortifying our members. Our mem- what are our members? Well, not the body of the church. You know, I mean, we call everybody in the church here members of the church. We're not talking about mortifying you guys. Our members are the extensions that are connected to our body. Arms, legs, head. Those are the main. Um, uh, but these, there are other parts of our body that lead us to sin. Think about our hands. Our hands touch what should be avoided. That's how we need to mortify what we touch. We need to mortify our hands. Our legs. If you think about our legs, our legs carry us to where we should not go. And our head imagines too many things to consider right now. But our head... Our head is full of imaginations, and those imaginations lead us into sin. So that's verse 5. He mortified the flesh. Verse 6, he says, he warns us. Okay, so first we need to mortify the flesh. That's how we begin to sanctify. Second, we must determine to be obedient. Notice in verse 6, he says, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And that's an interesting way to put things. But every person is being is, is warned here. He, Paul warns us of the wrath of God to come upon any who are disobedient. Well, what about a Christian being disobedient? Is God's wrath coming to you? Well, unfortunately, yes. Not the same wrath of being cast into hell. You're not going to lose your salvation. I'm not talking about that. But you do have to deal with God's wrath. Because God hates sin, and He will execute His wrath on sin. So for the lost, we have clarity that that, uh, this disobedience and this wrath means eternal separation from God. That's true. The lost will never experience either God's grace or His mercy, and they will never enter His presence. That's what that's what's awaiting the lost. They will never experience God's mercy, because you know as soon as you get saved, you get saved by grace, and you just experience it. So it's like from salvation point zero, you get God's grace, but a lost person doesn't have access to God's grace or His mercy or even enter His presence. In Galatians, Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 4 in Galatians, he says, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. You are fallen from grace. You just lose grace. And so, as for the saved, now this is important for us. As, a, as, the, as, as for the saved, there is still a loss that comes through your disobedience. There is a loss. Now, I know we're all going to go to the judgment seat of Christ, but listen to what Paul writes in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, verse 15, about the judgment seat of Christ. If any man's work shall be burned, that would be a disobedient work. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yes, so is by fire. So, yes, you do, you do uh, suffer something uh, because of God's wrath on your behavior, even as a Christian. You're not going to go to hell. You're not going to lose your salvation. You're just going to suffer. You will suffer loss, according to Paul's writing in verse 15. So while the saved are covered in God's grace and mercy, they're still required to sever sin from the body. Now, that's what Paul's getting at here, this whole thing, is that, yeah, you're a Christian. That doesn't mean you can still sin. There's so many people. I remember when Julie and I were in Zambia, uh, and we, t- we, we taught uh, that uh, once saved, always saved, basically. And everybody, just not, a, not not other missionaries, but a lot of the Zambian church members and pastors and stuff, just like, you can't teach that. You can't tell people they don't lose their salvation. They might sin. Yeah, they will. I mean, that's just what happens. If they don't if they don't know what's coming for them, in front of them, they will. They do. And, and so, but we all have the judgment seat of Christ. We all have to account for our behavior. What did you mortify in your life? What did you eliminate in your hands, in your legs, in your head? 
so that sin doesn't infest in your life. So while the saved are covered in God's grace and mercy, they are still required to uh, sever sin from the body. And so in verses four, 5, uh, the second part of verse 5, and then down in verses 8 and 9, uh, there's what I would call deeds under capital punishment. There are some behaviors that are under capital punishment. Notice in verse 5, starting about midway through the verse, he says, Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then in verse 8, he says, Put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communications out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that was created in him. Okay, so I would kind of put down two lists. There's two lists here. There's actually two lists. The first one in verse 5 and then the ones in verses 8 and 9. So we readily see that the first list contains two categories of sin. Basically, even though there are several things listed, there are two categories of sin. Uh, and, then, and these two categories of sin make up nearly the entire realm of human selfishness, selfishness and vice. We can also call them, we can call these sins um, impurity, let's see, where did I put a note here? Impurity and covetousness, or I would call them lust and greed. Lust and greed. And then I kind of, I want to give it a little bit of a definition because sometimes we miss out on what these words mean and we just kind of glance over them. But I think everybody's familiar with the word fornication. Unfortunately, we live in a world where just about every act between any people or gender not only are accepted but praised. It's unfortunate that's the way it is. As an act of identity, reality, or authenticity. But God says the only acceptable act is between a husband and a wife. So fornication is really any unlawful sexual act. No matter what it is, that's just, it's just wrong. So in the in the discussions today about whether it's homosexuals is right or wrong or this or that, if it's outside the, the covenant of husband and wife, it's wrong. Period. Man and woman, period. It's wrong. It's fornication. But we don't like to call it that because that's a hard word to say to people and people freak out over that word. But Paul also gives us another word. He gives us the word uncleanness. Uncleanness is a physical or moral defilement or obscenity. So it's a physical or moral defilement. It's a behavior that according to Romans chapter 6, verse 19, you give yourself over to such uncleanness. You, you actually have to enter that desire. You choose to enter into a, this, this behavior. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9, tells us that there's behavior that is motivated by greediness. So when we get greedy, we, we start to go after things. And Ephesians 5.3 tells us that this aligns with fornication and sometimes something that should not be named about. about it. I didn't turn to those verses for the sake of time, but hopefully you can uh, review them later on. And then he uses the phrase inordinate affection. An inordinate affection is a lust that drives with an uncontrollable desire to do something. Inordinate affection. And then he... he caps that with evil concupiscence which is an intense desire and in this case an evil desire and you know, there's, there's some desires that are good not every desire is bad there are evil desires and there are good desires but these evil desires um, generally refer to desires which are fixed on sensual objects or pleasures or profits something that's going to profit you or make you better not make you better as a Christian, but just make you better in what you think you should have. And then he talked about covetousness, a desire or an appetite to have that which is not yours to have. That's what covetousness is, this desire to have what is not yours to have. You want something that doesn't belong to you, you want something that you never have had, you want something that God hasn't given you, you desire it. The covetous person sets up another object, basically, uh, as God in their life. They set that up as God in their life. And then you talk about idolatry. The idolatry of this of the matter lies in the sensuous and unwholesome admiration developed into acts of evil. So when you, you know, idolatry is worshiping another, uh, something that replaces God, but it, it develops into acts of evil. Now I want you to notice the progression in this, in these, in this list. The sins grow from idolatry 
all the way up to fornication. So if you were to read the list backwards for verse 5, idolatry leads to covetousness, covetousness leads to evil concupiscence, evil concupiscence leads to inordinate affection, which leads to uncleanness behavior, which leads to fornication. And Paul says, you gotta, you got to knock this stuff out. You've got to mortify your flesh that desires these things, starting with idolatry. Don't put something else in your life that's that you've exalted above God, and then you desire that. Don't put you, don't put a person that you desire above God. Don't put a thing above God. Idolatry is 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 the root of most most evil sin, most sin, because you desire something that you shouldn't have, and you sin to get it. Paul says, mortify that concept. Now the second list, a little bit easier to, to, to grasp, it's real easy because everybody understands these words without, I don't have to go back to it and define all these words. But Paul takes us back to our life before being risen. Imagine before you got saved, what kind of person were you then? And Paul says, don't, don't keep that person. Mortify that. Cut that off. Get rid of it. The first list that Paul began with the deed, the act, and went back to the foundational motive. But in this list, he begins with the motive and moves toward the deed. If you look at it really clear, this list starts, what's it start with? It starts with anger. Anger leads to wrath. Wrath, wrath leads to malice and blasphemy, filthy communication out of your last, out of your mouth. And in verse 9, all of that anger leads to lying not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man. Lie not one to another. So, so anger leads to lying. Lying is a deceptive behavior. And all of that is sin. Paul says, cut it off. This list of behaviors we should hate because they are usually directed at other people. When you start with anger, you, you're usually angry at somebody else. And then that, that anger towards somebody else leads you to wrath and striking out in, uh, in anger and malice and blasphemy. You have filthy communication pouring out of your mouth because you're angry with somebody. All of that leads to where Paul says you need to cut that off. Verse 8 tells us to put these off, which literally means to renounce them, to lay down or to cast them off. Renounce them. And so for the most of the progression in this list is that your communication from anger through wrath, blasphemy, and filthy communication lies is directed towards another person. So what do you do with all of this? Paul says in verses 8 and 9, it's time to change who you are, the old man for the new man. So mortifying your members, as I said before, does not mean that you're going to commit suicide, but it also does not mean to remove them from the body. I mean, you're not literally going to cut your legs off. You're not literally going to cut your hand off. If you cut your head off, that would be a bad thing. Well, any of it would be bad. But, um, but it does not mean to remove them from the body, but it does mean to remove the temptation that leaves the member to act sinfully. So let me say that one more time. Paul is telling us to mortify the members that, and to remove, to remove the temptation that leads that member uh, to act sinfully. Uh, you, your hands touch things, that are, and your hands have the ability to touch things that are, that are sinful. So mortify that touch. Now, not literally cut your hand off, but be dead to it. Be dead to what that touch will give you. Be dead to what your legs will take you to. Don't go there. I mean, it's pretty simple. Just don't walk there. Don't go there. Um, but how does that translate to everyday living and walking spiritually? How do we how do we make this look in reality in our own life? It's all good to know theoretically, of course. So we, we know we're supposed to be dead to sin, and that we understand that we died, we're, we're dead to sin when, when we got saved and all that stuff. But you know what? If you look at Romans chapter 6, verse 2, Romans chapter 6, verse 2, Paul says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Well, we do, don't we? We live in sin all the time. I mean, we have sinful thoughts. We have sinful places that we go. We have sinful things that we reach out for to grab. And Paul, Paul's asking. So he illustrates this truth using two men, the old man and the new man. This is nothing. This is really nothing new for you guys because you you should all understand putting on the old, taking off the old man, putting on the new man. We know what Paul said in 
First Corinthians or Second Corinthians five thirteen five seventeen. Anybody know what that is, real quick? First Thessalonians five seventeen. Second Corinthians. Let me do this again. Second Colossians. Second Corinthians, chapter five, verse seventeen. Without looking at it, without digging, without going. I give you the first part. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have become new. Behold, all things become new. So, okay, so if you're saved, you should be a new person, right? But Paul is actually telling you in this in this part of the chapter, put on that new man. You're supposed to already have it on, but make sure you put it on. Put on the new man. So, um, the old man, let's talk about the old man. That's our that's our nature before salvation. Before we have been forgiven of our sin, that's, that old man is that person. The second is the new man, verse 10. So you, first time you see these, these men, verse 9 says, put off, the, put off the old man. Verse 10, put on the new man. So there's a contrast right there in just not even 10, 10 words. And so the first man is the old your old nature. The second is the new man, which is who you are in Christ. Who we are now because Christ is our life now. We are no longer need. We no longer need nor should desire what that old man wanted. We should, we should be we should be severed. We should be surgically removed from that desire, whether it's by hand, by feet, or by mouth, by thoughts. We should be severed from that thought. The old man is what we were by nature, by natural birth, which is a sinful nature inherited from Adam. So we got that sinful nature from Adam. We know that Romans five twelve. The new man, though, is presented when we are born again. So you got your old nature when you were born physically, and you got your new nature, this new man, when you were born spiritually. And Paul is reminding us what he said. And I already gave you the verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So yes, the old nature remains. The old nature always remains. I mean, we are still who we were before we got saved, but we're supposed to put on the new man to make us different. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our, our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So we still have the opportunity to serve sin as a believer, and Paul is telling us that we need to change that. Of course, in verse 9, you've already put off the old man, so stop living like he's still around. The old man is, don't live like he's still around. Don't invite him into your home. Don't don't go there with him. Don't walk, don't touch, don't think about this old man. And this is not a directive to put off. It is because you have already put it off that you should do this. It's not just like put it off to, to, to be saved. We're not talking about getting saved. We're talking because you are saved, you need to put off the old man. You should put on the new man and you because you've been renewed. Not only have you put off, but you, you should also put on. And then he says in verses uh, 13 to 15, he gives us a little bit descriptive, really kind of all the way down through the end of this chapter, but let's just look at 13 to 15. Forbearing one another. Well, let me go back to verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and longsuffering. Now, what I didn't do, I should have done, as I'm thinking of it, I should have compared verse 7, verse 12 with verses 8 and 9 and verse 5, just, just to see the... the, the the contrast between them. But in verse 12, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and, and, and beloved. So are you holy and beloved? Vows of mercy. Do you have mercy, kindness, and humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering? Then verse 13, forbearing one another. This is an active, active statement. Forbear one another and forgive one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to that which is also your called in one body, and be ye thankful. You see where Paul's going? Paul's saying, don't act like an old, don't act like you used to be. Act like a new person. Act like, put on that new stuff. Forbearing. To hold one up from falling. That's what the word forbearing means. To hold one up from falling. This is an expression of the love of Christ flowing through us to others. So when we when we forbear other people who need to know Christ, we're holding them up. 
Ephesians 4.2 says, With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbear one another in love. Lift them up in loving them. Care about them. Shore them up. Another word that speaks similarly, you may be familiar with the Bible word, is long-suffering. Long-suffering is basically the same thing as forbearing. It means to refrain, refrain before taking action. So, okay, so forbearing in verse, at the beginning of verse 13 leads us into forgiving. And forgiving is, forgiving, how would you define forgiving? I know we would talk about what his actions look like, but how would we define forgiving? I would put it this way. It's an outward expression of forbearing others. You can't forbear others if you haven't forgiven them. You can't hold them up. You can't keep them up if you haven't forgiven them. It's what God did to us through Christ. He forbear, He forgave us, and then He lifted us up. All the way to heaven, actually. We're taken all the way to heaven. So, He held us up till we could see, that, so that we could seek that forgiveness and receive His gift. So let me wrap this all up. We're finishing up a little bit sooner than I thought, but that's okay. So let me just in verses 14 and 15. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the that which is the to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. And you think about what's going on with the people that are that, that might be running around in in this church, trying to deceive and steal their your your identity as a Christian. And Paul's saying, love people. That'll take care of a lot of problems. But anyway, put on charity so that the peace of God prevails. If you love people, I mean, if you hate people, they're, they're not going to probably follow where you're going. If you love them, they probably will. The intent of Paul's message is what a true believer looks like. That's what everything he's talking about. What does a true believer actually look like? That's why this letter is, such, is so short. Most people can read this letter probably in 20 minutes. The whole thing. I mean, maybe 30 Maybe, okay, give it an hour. I don't know how long. Maybe you're faster. You're, I'm not. Okay, so you read the whole book, and then it's done, closed. I've got my, you reading it for the day, but you didn't pick out anything that's, that's significant. So you have to read it slow. But anyway, our actions no longer look like the old man. That's what Paul is trying to tell us. They are replaced with the new man. We should be ordained with forgiveness, love, and perfectness in order that other people will see Christ in our life, and they will know what Christ is offering them. So, Paul's going through a lot of things, and we still haven't finished chapter 3 yet. We'll get to that next week. Um, we'll, we'll start back in verse probably 16, 17 area, and then wrap it all up. Because there's still some more behaviors that Paul talks about there. So, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll be dismissed a little bit early. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the Son of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this letter from Paul uh, to us, Lord. Not just to the church of Colossae, but the letter. This letter is to Heartland. Uh, here in Harrisonville. We praise you for that, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to really put these truths into our life. Help us to mortify our sins. Help us to put on the new man on a daily basis. Uh, Lord, that we would live out according to your will and others might see just who you are through us. We just thank you and praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, Terry. Hi, Linda. Bye.